Our scripture reading today is from Nehemiah 2.11 to 3.1. So I came to Jerusalem and there was there for three days. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate past the dragon spring to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the valley by night and expected the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest that were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, what is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we his servants are going to start building, but you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. Then the high priest Eliashib set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Can we give Danielle a hand? That was the longest scripture reading ever. She's like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> no, she did great. You did great. Well, uh, we are right in the middle of our series that we're calling Get in the Game. And in this series, we're actually using the book of Nehemiah as a backdrop, as kind of a guide for us as we explore our calling as a church, as we talk about and as we explore our calling as a church to impact the world for Christ. Did you realize that? Did you realize that when you came here today that that's what you had signed up for? Your calling as a member of First Methodist Church and the, and the, and the worldwide church is to impact the environment around you for Christ. As the church, we talked about this last week, as the church, we are called to play the game. We are not called to, to sit comfortably on the sideline, uh, to keep the bench warm, to make sure the cups of water are full. We are called to be in the game. We are called to be in the midst of the battle, to, to risk winning or losing. We are not called to sit on the sidelines. We talked about that last week. You're, you're called to be in the game. But in order for us to, to be in the game and give us the best chance for success, we also have to have a game plan. And that's what we're going to be exploring today is our game plan. But before we get into that, I want to just take a, a moment or two to go back and review the story as we move forward. First, I want you to remember. Remember with me the days of Nehemiah. And how in those days, the people of Israel, they were in exile. Remember that the city 
of Jerusalem, the pride of Israel, had been torn down, destroyed. The temple had been ransacked and burned to the ground. The the protective walls that surrounded the city had been broken down and and were just piles of rubble, and and the gates had been burned. And Nehemiah, when he heard about this report, when he heard about the condition of Israel, how, or how bad it was in Jerusalem, his heart was broken. And he was grieved. And it was in that pain that he decided it was time for him to get in the game. It was time for change to happen for Israel. And Nehemiah deep down inside understood that that pain, that conviction that bothered him was a subtle reminder that he had to be a part of the solution. If he no longer wanted the situation to be the way it was, he was going to have to do something about it. And what I love about Nehemiah is the way in which he responded to that pain. When he heard about Israel and the broken walls and the burned down temple and how people were crawling over rubble and and there were just just stones broken apart laying everywhere, the, the way he responded first was prayer and repentance. He didn't start by saying, we gotta get a building plan going, we gotta raise some money. He first acknowledged the reason that Israel was in those circumstances. He went before the Lord and he asked God for forgiveness and he repented both for his personal sin but also the collective sin of the nation of Israel. He said before God, we are in this situation not because of you but because of us. That God, you have been gracious but we have been rebellious. But then after, after that, that prayer and that, and that repentance, he went about c- coming together and, and forming a plan. And as he was forming that plan, he decided to take what little influence he had and try to influence the king, Artaxerxes. It was a bold move. A bold move. Uh, as as the, the, cut, the cupbearer of the king, he goes to King Artaxerxes and he says, King, I have, I have something I want to ask of you. Will you let me go back to my native land? Will you let me go back to Jerusalem? The walls are torn down. It, it's terrible. Oh, and um, will you provide some soldiers to escort me there to make sure that I'm, that I'm safe and I'm protected when I get there? And, uh, oh, also, can you uh, write out some decrees that I can get what supplies I need from your, your royal supplies so that I have what I need to, to, to do what I feel like God's calling me to do? I mean, even today, that's bold. But at this time, Nehemiah being who he was and believing in the God that he believed in, this would have just been a huge risk. And we know that because Nehemiah was, was tore up with fear. But he decided to take a risk despite the fear. And, dis- and despite all odds, the king says, yes. Yes, you can go. Yes, I'll provide protection. And yes, I will meet the, the supply needs. Despite all of those things, God was faithful through the king. Now, I'm going to take a, just a, a side road here for just a, just a second and talk about that relationship. How many of you know that the God 
and the belief system that Nehemiah followed contrasted greatly with that of Artaxerxes. But do you see the relationship that Nehemiah had built with this king? He didn't come in and, and ridicule the king and undermine the king and talk bad about the king behind his back. He was faithful to God in the way in which he served the authority that was placed over him. And church, we're coming to a time uh, here not too far past November where we're going to have an authority placed over us that some of us are going to be really excited about and some of us are going to be really upset about. But if we're going to follow the example of the, of the great men and women of the Bible, uh, you, though you might not like that person, you have a responsibility to be faithful in the way that you talk about them and the way that uh, you uh, engage with their leadership. Because there may be a time where God calls you to something greater and he wants to use that person in that position of authority to accomplish his plans and purposes. You might, be, you might think I'm just burning a bridge for myself when in fact you're burning a bridge that's gonna prevent God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. So let's just keep that in mind as we move closer uh, to election day. Okay, moving on. So again, Nehemiah asked the king, can I go? And again, the king says, yes, you can go. And so, and so uh, now we get to the scripture that we're looking at this morning, and, and Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, and this is what he does first. We see that here. He says, three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me, and I had not told anyone about the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. So Nehemiah arrives, and he spends all night inspecting the condition. He wanted to see, he wanted to have first hand experience in the destruction that he was facing. He wanted to see with his own eyes and have a clear picture of what it was going to take to move forward. And he has a game plan in mind. He knows what it's going to take to move forward, but he had not shared that with the people yet. And then in the next verse, we see that the Nehemiah gathers the people together and he says, but now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about the gracious hand of God and how it had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. I just, I just love the power in that moment. Here we have people living in the midst of destruction. And no one had a plan to get them out of it. I mean, just imagine with me that the people of that city of Jerusalem every day before Nehemiah had arrived, they got up and they made their breakfast and, and they drank their coffee and they got ready for work. And many of them had to navigate around rubble and climb over rubble and, and, and just, just, just go around all of this destruction to get to where they needed to go and to do what they needed to do. And if we're honest, they probably didn't do that whistling, right? They probably did it complaining. God, who's going to move these boulders? Who's going to get these rocks out of the way? If someone would just take care of this situation, I wouldn't have to climb over all this stuff every day. So for, for years, the people lived in, the, in an environment 
of brokenness and destruction. And as far as we can tell, no one seemed to have an idea or a willingness to do what it took to fix the problem. And I think if we're going to be honest today, it's really easy to criticize uh, the people of Jerusalem in, in Nehemiah's time. But I think we're going to be really honest. We're, we're, we're similar. I mean, I think uh, any of us could turn on the news and, and find something to complain about. Any of us could to look at the circumstances in our, in our city and in our state and in our, our government. And we, we find it so easy to complain and be frustrated and, and identify the brokenness. But how many of us go past complaining and began to get a game plan together to clean up the rubble? To take care of the obstacles and the hardships and to take things that were broken and make them whole again. See, that's who Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was kind of, he was, a, he was a, an Israelite. He was a Jew, but he was kind of an outsider because he had been in, in exile serving Artaxerxes. So he comes back and he scratches his head and he looks at the, the conditions that this city is living in and he says, why would you do this? Why would you leave all these boulders and these, these, these burned down gates and why would you walk over all this stuff? Why wouldn't you do something about it? And many times that's what we need as a people. We need somebody to be inspired by God to come along and prod us and wake us up to the rut that we've allowed ourselves to fall into. All it took was an outsider for the people of Jerusalem to come under the conviction of God that they had to do something different to move forward. They had to, to, to get a hold of this, this new outlook that they could indeed rebuild the wall. How important it is for us to have a game plan for us to have a vision, for us to have a passion for what God is calling us to do. And here's what's amazing to me. The, the plan that Nehemiah had, it wasn't that hard. It wasn't even that complex. It was really simple. But he had passion and he had this, this sense of confidence that this was what God was calling him to do. He had a game plan. And church, I think that is key for us, especially in the times in which we live. We have to have a game plan or else we risk falling into a similar rut and walking around the destruction, complaining all day the way that the, the people of Jerusalem did. See, too many of us get up in the morning and we walk past brokenness. Too many of us come home in the evenings and we turn on the TV and we see brokenness. But too many of us respond the way the nation of Israel did in Jerusalem. We just keep walking past it, complaining about the fact that it's broken. But can I just tell you, that is not our calling as a church our calling as a church is to rebuild what was broken. Our callingness as a church, our, what God is inviting us to participate in is transforming lives for the kingdom of God. That is our mission. That is our calling. That is our vision. 
We have to have a vision if we're going to fulfill what God is calling us to. You see, a vision allows us to see through the destruction around us. When the people of Jerusalem looked out among their city, they saw a broken wall. They saw defeat. They were reminded of what had happened in the past. But Nehemiah had a vision from God. And so when he looked at the city, he saw ingredients to restoration. He saw rocks that could be put back together. He saw what God was wanting to do in the future. And he was pulled towards it. And as he allowed God to pull him towards that future, he brought other people with him. That's what we're called to do, church. We're not called to, to look at the past. We're not called to just be able to see that something's broken. We are called to have a vision from the Lord so that we can see not what was broken, but what has potential for restoration. We're not called to see what, what brokenness has taken place in the past. We're called to see what God might be putting back together in the future. And we're called to live such lives in that way that as we allow God to call us into that future, we pull other people with us. We inspire other people to come alongside us and be faithful to, and, and, and to allow God to restore them as he restores the environments around them. I probably should have warned you I was going to preach at you a little bit today. I apologize for that. I should have given you a heads up. But again, I want to go back to, to Nehemiah's plan. I want to read for you in, in, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah. I want to point out a couple of things here, and I want you to kind of listen to see if you can pick up on some of the clues of Nehemiah's plan. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Then the high priest Eliashib set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built next to him, and next to him Zakur, son of Emri, built. Then go into verse 8. Next to them, Uzziah, son of Harahiah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Next to, next to him, Hanahiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphahiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, son of Haramath, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs. Do you hear the uniqueness in that? Nehemiah was able to, with God's vision, unite the people around one task, rebuilding the wall. All these different people, goldsmiths, perfumers, leaders, rulers, priests, they were all united around this one goal, rebuild the wall. And then also, uh, Nehemiah knew that in unity, there was room for diversity. Like I said, we have all these different people from all these different groups working side by side. Some were goldsmiths, some were perfumers, some were priests, some were rulers, but they were united together despite their diversity because they were united under one vision and one goal. And then number three, each of them had a small part to play. See, Nehemiah had seemed to have this idea that he organized people and the responsibility they had around the, the, the wall closest to where they lived or where they worked. 
So Nehemiah didn't come to the people and say, hey, I need all of us to build all the wall. He went to each people group and said, can you just re rebuild the wall around your house? Can you just do this little section? And can you do this section? And you do this section? And if we all do our part and use our gifts accordingly, we'll rebuild the wall together. We even see that in Nehemiah 3.28. It says, each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. See, Nehemiah was wise to invite them to just do the part that was closest to them, the part that, that they could influence. Nehemiah didn't overwhelm them with fixing the whole wall. He invited them to be moved and inspired and maybe convicted by the condition of the wall within their vicinity, the condition of the wall they could see out their kitchen window. In fact, he's really inviting them to have vision. Stop seeing the rubble. Stop seeing what it is. Maybe start seeing it for what it could be. See, it's the same with us. We need to have a vision. And what we've been doing over the past several months is we've been working to refine and, and refocus our vision, our mission, our core values, and our success factors as a church. And uh, we've decided to start calling that collective grouping of information our ministry compass. Because you think about what a compass is supposed to do. It's supposed to help, help you figure out where you're at and help you get to where you want to go. It does both. And so our ministry compass does the same. It helps us as a church determine where we're at and then also helps, us, helps direct us to where we want to go, to where we feel like God is leading us. And here's our vision. Here's our vision as a church. We dream of a discipleship movement that engages 10% of the communities that we serve. We envision a day where we're involved in a discipleship movement that, that engages 10% of the communities that we serve. That's a big goal. That is a, uh, what our uh, district superintendent would call a big, wild, audacious goal. But it's a big goal just like Nehemiah's big goal to build the wall. But to us, it's strategic. For us, reaching 10% of a population is a tipping point. See, what we're believing for is that as a church, we're going to be engaging our community in such a way that uh, one in every 10 people that you bump into the grocery store has been influenced and, and blessed by our ministry. That, that one in every 10 students that you walk by in the hallways of your school uh, are people who have been impacted by our ministry. Because we know and we understand that when you hit 10% of a population, you're not just influencing individuals. You begin to now have the capacity to influence culture. And that's what we're moving towards. And let me just be clear, we're not talking about getting 10% of the populations that we serve into this room. We're talking about going out and engaging 10% of the population out there. Some of them will come here and some of them will join and be a part of what's here, but it's just about making God's presence and God's vision known out there and then trusting that God will call here whoever he wants to call. See, along with, with our, our vision flows our mission. And our mission is that we, we, we want to awaken people to transform lives by providing opportunities to glorify God and worship, 
to grow deep through connections to Jesus, God's word, and people, and to go serve their neighbor, their community, and their world. Glorify, grow, go. You're going to hear that a lot (laughs) over the next year. We believe as a church we have the opportunity and really the responsibility to help people glorify God in worship. We want people gathering together in worship. We want them growing deeper in their relationship with Jesus, and we believe people grow in groups, so we want people in a group. And then we think that a natural response to healthy discipleship is serving. We want groups and individuals serving in our community. But here's the deal. Church, we're not asking you to build the whole wall. We're not asking you to reach the whole 10% of the communities that we're serving. But what we are inviting you and asking you to do is consider reaching the 10% of the community that's within your circle of influence. Maybe there's somebody that you talk to every time you go to the coffee shop, you run into the same cashier. Could you influence them? Maybe uh, it's uh, the people you run into at the grocery store. Maybe it's the people that you go to class with. Maybe it's uh, the people that uh, are on your kid's sports team. Would you commit and would you answer God's call to influence that 10% so that collectively as we all work on the portion of the wall that's closest to us, we might reach the whole 10% of the community. See, we're not asking you to take a giant leap We're asking you to take small, intentional steps. Small, intentional steps. Nehemiah didn't invite the people of Jerusalem to work on the wall 10 miles down the road from their house. He asked them to work on the wall right across from where they they eat and they sleep. That's what we're inviting you to do. To look at the circles of influence around you and, and see where God might want to rebuild something. See where God might want to invite somebody uh, into a community of faithfulness to God. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team to come back up. And here's what I uh, I want to invite you to do. This is your next step as a church. Uh, At the back today, as you're leaving, our ushers are going to have copies of our ministry compass. It also has our success factors and our core values listed on it. And what I'm going to invite you to do is I'm going to invite you to, to follow Nehemiah's example. The first thing that Nehemiah did when he was overwhelmed by God's vision and God's calling for him to rebuild the wall was he went to God in prayer and he fasted and he prayed and he repented. So when you get that ministry compass this week, I want you to set aside 30 minutes for prayer and I want you to ask God for forgiveness for your sins, but also for the collective sins of the church. And then the second thing I want you to do is I want you to read over that ministry compass. And while you're reading over it, I want you to be praying and asking God, God, what do you want me to see? Is there a way you're inviting me to engage our community in these success factors? And then as you're praying, if God reveals something to you, as you start to see something, I want you to ask God, what do you want me to do about it? So repent, ask God what he wants you to see, and then ask God what... He wants you to do about it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us not to be overwhelmed by your calling, but to be inspired that you want to take our small acts of faithfulness and do something big with it. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.